Tomato Produce Company, the law offices of John P. Strauss III, Asiento, FruFruHot.com, JankyTown.org, Brooke Heineken, Pervert Fervor, and Trina Roderick. Asiento. This locally owned Mission Neighborhood Bar and Restaurant is excited to be a sponsor for the festival. We hope you'll join us any night of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival for happy hour pricing all night long. Just mention that you are an audience member for happy hour pricing March 1st through the 5th at Asiento. Our address is 2730 21st Street at Bryant Street, just a half a block away from Mutiny Radio. Asiento has a warm, friendly neighborhood vibe that's perfect for an after-work drink or for a night out. Featuring a comfortable bar and extensive tapas menu, this is the perfect place for groups that want to get together for drinks and food. Join us at Asiento. Whoa there. What a tomato! Where did you find such a nice tomato? What a tomato? I know, I just said that. Where'd you get that fine heirloom? What a tomato. Look, man, this isn't a come on. Just tell me where you got that beautiful tomato. What a tomato. No, no, seriously, I actually want to eat a tomato. I love tomatoes. Where did you get that tomato? What a tomato. Dude, it's a fine, beautiful tomato. I want to eat one, too. I want one right now. I like to eat them like an apple with salt. Tell me, where'd you get the tomato? What a tomato. Are you high? Just tell me where I can find a tomato like that. What a tomato. Is this a metaphor? What a tomato produce company in San Francisco. For all your wholesale produce needs, 2055 Jared Avenue. Hope your legs are looking sexy, because we're going to charm your pants off. Come to the Charm Offensive Comedy Show at Punchline San Francisco. It's a night of great jokes, magnetic personalities, featuring the Bay Area's most awarded comedians, plus national headliners. You'll laugh. You'll swoon. And when you regain your composure, you'll swipe right. Tuesday, March 7th. Doors at 7, show at 7.30 at 444 Battery Street in San Francisco's Financial District. Brought to you by Paco Romaine and Destiny's Moms Comedy. Our last show sold out, so get your tickets now at punchlinecomedyclub.com. Charm Offensive at Punchline Comedy San Francisco. Tuesday, March 7th. See you there, sexy. What's with the limp? I got hit by a car on my bike. This person just ran a red light. How are you going to work? You wait tables. I don't know. I'm terrified. I count on my tips and these hospital bills are confusing. The insurance adjusters just treat me like I'm a piece of paperwork. Man, you should go to johnstrausslaw.com. John Strauss is a great personal injury attorney. When I got hurt, he handled everything for me. He was on my side. And best of all, I didn't have to pay out of pocket. He got paid when I did. That's great because I cannot afford to pay out of pocket. Yeah, don't let them confuse you and trick you. They treat you like you're a business. It's not business. It's personal. Injury. JohnStraussLaw.com 
Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. What? Never sleep again! Let it sound... Morning mutineers, welcome to Labor and Love. On a rainy Saturday afternoon, hey, the sun's come out now. The West End Blues. Good morning, everybody. This is the B 
Bill Morgan coming at you this morning from Mutiny Radio at 2781 21st Street. Kind of a lazy, sunny, cloudy afternoon. Rain came and gone, but more's on the way. Louis Armstrong with the West End Blues. And our feature artist of the day. There's a sheep 
the black freighter with a skull on its masthead will be coming in. Gentlemen can say, hey gal, finish them floors, get upstairs, what's wrong with you, earn your keep here. You toss me your tips and look out to the ships, but I'm counting your heads as I'm making the beds, cause there's nobody gonna sleep here tonight. Nobody's gonna sleep here, honey. Nobody. And you say, who's that kicking up a row? And you see me kind of staring out the window. And you say, what's she got to stare at now? I'll tell you, there's a ship. The Black Freighter. around in the harbor shooting guns from her bow now you gentlemen can wipe off that smile off your face because every building in town is a flat one this whole freaking place will be down to the ground only this cheap hotel standing up safe and sound and you yell Yes, that's what you say. Why do they spare that one? All the night through, through the noise and to-do, you wonder who is that person that lives up there? And you see me stepping out in the morning, looking nice with a ribbon in my hand. <laughs> and the ship, the black freighter, runs a flag up its masthead and a cheering
may pile up the bodies and I'll say that'll learn ya Good morning, mutineers. Good morning, laborers, laborers and lovers. <laughs> this is the Labor and Love Show. Labor commentary, opinion, news, ideas. I'm the B, proud member of two San Francisco unions. And the show today is going to feature... As you might figure, the <clears throat> the uh, loss the, by Donald Trump's forces of their labor secretary, their proposed labor secretary, Andy Puzder. We're going to look at him, and we're going to look at uh, the man Trump wants to replace him, a guy named Alexander Acosta. What are we going to get from the, this guy? If he's confirmed, we don't know. But we'll talk about that. Donald Trump says he saved jobs. Did he really? Or is he just taking credit for things that were going to happen already? Ford Mexico is going ahead with, with their plans. We've got radio labor. we got labor... Radio, California's, Californians back Trump, but his immigration policies might break them. Uh, and we have our featured artist, Ms. Nina Simone, a.k.a. Eunice Kathleen Wayman. Born uh, February 21st, 1933. An artist who, a true artist, because her art came directly out of her life. And her life expressed itself through her art. When she was on the stage and saying, are you ready to go burn down some buildings? She meant it. 
Nina Simone is one of those people. Uh, there's a line from Leroy Jones where he says, "If if Bird could have gone out on the street and killed the first white people that he saw, he wouldn't have had to blow a note." And it was that way with Eunice Kathleen Wayman, A.K.A. Nina Simone. With the backing of a music teacher, she applied to um, Curtis Music, music uh, sort of like a Juilliard kind of place. Um, before that, she, she was a, p a pianist. She was trained as a pianist. And when she was 12 years old, she played a, a performance, a recital and her parents came to sit and watch her and sat in the front row and they were moved to the back to make room for white people. Nina Simone later said she refused to play until her parents were moved back to the front. Uh, she was rejected. Her application to Curtis Music Academy was, Institute of Music was rejected. Uh, she always thought that was because of her race. Uh, the blow was particularly heavy. She took private lessons with uh, Vladimir Sokolov, a professor at Curtis, but never reapplied to the institution. Later on, the, the institution named uh, part of the school after her. A little too late. She went to work um, as a waitress, taught piano to young aspiring students, uh, performed at the Midtown Bar and Grill, and only started to sing because the proprietor said that if she would sing, he would pay her uh, more money, $90 a week. She changed her name from Eunice Wayman to Nina Simone, taking the word Nina, which means little girl, and Simone. Uh, she saw a movie with a French actress, Simone Signoret. And uh, talk a little bit more about Nina Simone later on. We'll play a whole Nina Simone set. Let's look at some labor news now. And this is from uh, KTLA. I'm thinking that's LA's uh, CBS affiliate. I don't know. Ford's CEO says plan to expand two Mexican plants is moving forward despite Trump's pressure to bring jobs back to the U.S. Ford is expanding its Mexican operations. These plans are not new. They were first announced in 2015. But they may seem at odds with all the recent buzz about U.S. automakers bringing jobs back to the U.S. amid pressure from Donald Trump. Ford got a lot of attention last month when it dropped its plans to build a $1.6 billion dollar assembly plan in San Luis Potosi in Mexico. 
but the small car production originally planned for the discontinued San Luis Potosi plant is shifting to an existing Ford Mexican assembly plant. The two expanded Mexican plants are still on track to open this year, said Ford spokesman Kelly Felker. Ford is spending $2.5 billion on constructions and will hire 3,800 workers once the plants are fully up and running. So here we go, Trump taking um, Trump taking credit for something that didn't really happen. Um, I'm looking at a website now called from money.cnn.com. And it's entitled, Trump and Jobs are Running Fact Check. Our minority president has taken credit for the creation of thousands of jobs and for helping to keep jobs in the United States. And he, he takes credit. He said, if I didn't get elected, they would have left. But let's look through some of these cases. In, Intel... Intel announced that, let's see, Intel announced that the tech giant would invest $7 billion in a new Arizona factory, creating 10,000 related jobs. Trump says with a new plant in Arizona that was probably not going to move ahead with, and that will result in at least 10,000 American jobs. The new computer chip factory will directly create 3,000 high-paying, high-wage tech jobs at its peak. It will support more than 10,000 related jobs in, in the state. But the project isn't entirely Trump's doing. In fact, Intel previously announced a $5 billion investment in the same Arizona chip factory with former President Barack Obama. So check this out. This is uh, CNN. It's called Trump and Jobs, a running fact check. Our minority president is taking credit for things that he didn't really do. What else is new? Right, let's uh, take a look now. I have to understand now that Trump, by his actions, by his words during the campaign, he occasionally spoke to American workers and said that he was going to be their voice and carry their interests. How could anyone expect that he would do that? Again, maybe this was a desperation vote. In fact, Hillary Clinton did even less to appeal to American workers than Donald Trump. I think she took for granted that the old Democratic alliance that was founded in the 30s and renewed in the 60s was going to take, take her through, that she would automatically get Labor's vote with such a guy as Trump. Well, not true. 
Didn't work out that way, did it? <laughs> um, okay. I'd like to read uh, read these articles and and find out. You know, here's a uh, Rich Robinson. Trump's people are. He bullet from the back of the bush took Medgar Evers' blood. Set the spark, two eyes took the aim behind a man's brain, but he can't be blamed. He's only a pawn in their game. A South politician preaches to the poor white man. used it as plain for the politician's game as he rises to fame and the poor white remains on the caboose of the train but it ain't him to blame he's only a pawn in their game the deputy sheriffs the soldiers the governors get paid And the cops get the same But the poor white man's used In the hands of them all like a tool He's taught in his school From the start by the rule That the laws are with him To protect his white skin To keep up his hate so he never thinks straight about the shape that he's in but it ain't him to blame he's only a pawn in their game from the poverty shacks he looks from the cracks to the tracks and the to lynch to hide neath the hood to kill with no pain like a dog on a chain he ain't got no name but it ain't him to blame he's only a pawn in their game today Medgar Evers was buried from the bullet he caught Fired the gun 
he'll see by his grave on the stone that remains carved next to his name his epitaph plain only upon in their game To welcome the world's greatest blues singer, the king of the blues, B.B. King! Got 
got me so upset And Memphis has made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi Hound dogs on my trail Little school children sitting in jail Black cat cross my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time Cause I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer I've been there, so I know you keep on saying go slow. Well, that's just the trouble. Too slow. Washing the windows. Too slow. Picking the cotton. Too slow. Nothing but rotten. Too slow. Too damn lazy. Too Try to do my very best Stand up, be counted with all the rest Cause everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Now you heard him He's one of you If you have been moved at all And you know my songs at all For God's sakes, join me Don't sit back there The time is too late now. Good God. You know, the king is dead. The king of love is dead. I ain't about to be non-violent, honey. Oh, no. Picket lines. Boy cops, they try to say it's a communist spot, but all I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. And I loved him because he believed it, he lived by it. But you lied to me all the years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine, just like a lady. And you stopped calling my mama and said it. Hear me now. But my country is full of lies. We all gonna die and die like flies. I don't trust nobody anymore. Keep on saying go slow. That's just the trouble. Too slow. Desegregation. Too slow. Mass participation. Too slow. Unification. Too slow. 
next to me Just give me my equality Cause everybody knows about Mississippi Everybody knows about Alabama Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn That's it! Okay, Nina Simone with her uh, Mississippi Goddamn. Uh, <clears throat> Certainly one of her uh, best known performances. You get the feeling that Nina Simone is pushing her art up against her life and her life up against her art so that the two interject. When she says, come and join me, she's talking about people getting up Right then. And uh, joining the movement and, and doing something to end racism right at that moment. Nina Simone began recording in the 50s <clears throat> around uh, Atlantic City. And um, she made her first hit in 1958 with George Gershwin's I Love You, Porgy, from Porgy and Bess, which she learned from a Billie Holiday album and performed as a favor to a friend. Um, her debut album, Little Girl Blue, soon followed. She lost more than $1 million in royalties and never benefited financially from the album sales because she sold her rights outright for three thousand uh, dollars she began to record in earnest after that and um, in the early 60s married andrew stroud new york police detective who became her manager and father of her daughter lisa but he was abusive to simone psychologically at this time, she was only performing pop music to make money to continue her classical music studies and was indifferent about a recording contract. She kept this attitude toward the recording record industry for most of her career. So, Nina Simone. California farmers who backed... Donald Trump are uh, running into problems. Let's take that up next. Okay, here, here's um, the New York Times, February 9th. California farmers back Trump, but now fear losing field workers. And we all know the story, or we should, of the uh, watermelon crop in um, Alabama. Alabama passed such strict anti-immigrant laws uh, that people stopped going there to work. 
and the watermelon crop for a whole year was lost because there was no one to harvest the watermelon. Jeff Marcini and others in the Central Valley here have bet their farms on the election of Donald J. Trump. His message of reducing regulations and taxes appealed to this Republican stronghold, one of Mr. Trump's strongest bases of support in the state. As for his promises about cracking down on illegal immigrants, many assumed Mr. Trump's pledges were mostly just talk. But two weeks into his administration, Mr. Trump has signed executive orders that have upended the country's immigration laws. More about executive orders a little later in our uh, This Day in Labor History segment. Anyway, now farmers here are deeply alarmed about what the new policies could mean for their workers, most of whom are unauthorized and the businesses that depend on them. Some people think that Trump, once he's aware of the problem, will change his mind. Marquini says, I'm confident confident that he can grasp the magnitude and the anxiety of what's happening now. Mr. Trump's immigration policies could transform California's Central Valley, a stretch of lowlands that extends from Redding to Bakersfield. Approximately 70% of all farm workers here are living in the United States, quote-unquote, illegally. Conversations with nearly a dozen farmers, most of whom voted for Mr. Trump, each acknowledged that they relied on workers who provided false documents. And if the administration were to weed out illegal workers, farmers say their businesses would be crippled. Even Republican lawmakers from the region have supported plans that would give farm workers a path to citizenship. If we send all these people back, said Harold McClarty, a fourth-generation farmer in Kingsburg, it would be a total disaster. These people have been working for us for a long time, and we have depended on them. So, where are you going to get your cheap labor, America? What's happening? If you pass laws against your own workers, you're cutting off your foot to spite your face or something like that. This is the short-sightedness of many of, of Trump's initiative. He doesn't look at the consequences, the unexpected consequences of what he's, what he's doing. This week was a big victory for labor, labor movement, because Andrew Puzder, Trump's pick for labor secretary, is out. Puzder, a notorious tax cheat, wage theft figure uh, famously said that robots are better than human workers because they never get sick. They're always upbeat. 
Um, Puzder finally withdrew his own name from the from the running. Who's going to go up before the Senate? Puzder decided to withdraw his nomination as new chief of the largest federal labor, labor agency as opposition spread from traditional pro-labor Democrats to include a handful of conservative Republicans. Uh, Puzder's places, Carl's Jr., are notorious for wage theft, for sort of a permissive uh, environment, for sexual harassment, CKE, that's the parent company, has a terrible record of wage law violations and employment discrimination complaints that disqualified Puzder from high government office. So, the fight for 15 people descended on CKE or corporate offices in St. Louis, Missouri, and Anaheim, California, and at two dozen fast food sites Statewide, the demonstrations helped draw attention to Puzder's shortcomings. It was found that Puzder had hired a, a maid for um, who was in the country illegally, um, paid fifteen thousand dollars for her to get legal status. While his tenure at CK may be viewed as unobjectionable by ultra-right conservatives, Fells said, Puzzler's closure showed that he is also a labor scofflaw in his personal life. Uh, this is a man who has ads for his places of women in bikinis eating hamburgers. Saw nothing objectionable in that. Working conditions are atrocious, said one a cashier, former cashier at, at Carl's Jr. in Whittier, California. Okay. Uh, finally, it seemed like the clin what clinched it was someone dug up a, a tape from 1990 in the Op Oprah... Winfrey show where Puzzler's former wife, Lisa Fierston, who disguised herself and talked about how she had been abused by Puzzler during the marriage. Later on, she withdrew the charges. Uh, some people say she did it in order to get a custody settlement. At any rate, Puzder is out now, and we have a man named Alexander Acosta. And this is from the Washington Post. Five things you should know about Alexander Acosta, Trump's new pick for labor secretary. So this sort of took people by surprise. This was kind of unexpected. Acosta is not quite as controversial as Puzder was. 
but uh, he could be just as abusive to workers and their rights as Puzder was, maybe with a more laid-back, button-down style. Acosta is the dean of Florida's International University's Law School, member of the National Labor Relations Board from 2002 to 2003. He is a conservative Republican, once clerked for the infamous Samuel Alito, He worked in a conservative Washington-based think tank. He's a member of the Federalist Society, a conservative legal group. Um, Under his watch, uh, when he was working for the Justice Department, the attorneys who were deemed to be liberal were weeded out by one of Acosta's deputies, which he did nothing stop. He wrote a controversial letter supporting poll watchers, gave his opinion saying nothing in the Voting Rights Act condemns the use of poll monitors, which supporters said will eliminate voter fraud. There's the old Bupagoo. Voter fraud, where is it? Where is it, Steve Miller? Well, every anyone who, know, who lives in uh, New Hampshire knows about this, Miller says. On occasion, Acosta defended civil rights for Mexican-Americans when he was head of the Civil Rights Division. He defended an 11-year-old student who had sued her Oklahoma school district for requiring her to remove her hijab. He wrote, No student should be forced to choose between following her faith and enjoying the benefits of a public education. No community has a monopoly on any particular kind of crime. Comments and work are relevant now because Acosta would be tasked with enforcing anti-discrimination laws if confirmed as labor secretary. Worked on some uh, high-profile cases, busting GOP lobbyist Jack Abramoff, Some people say that the penalty for Abramoff was too light. He was also involved in prosecution of accused terrorist Jose Padilla, who was an alleged part of an Al-Qaeda cell. Um, He's the chairman of a community bank, whatever that means. So far, we know very little about his work on the National Labor Relations Board. something we'll have to look into as people find out more and more. Um, Here's Amy Goodman's take on it. It's entitled, Does New Labor Secretary nominee Alec Acosta have the perfect resume to sabotage a federal agency? to head the Labor Department. His first pick, fast food CEO Andrew Puzder, withdrew on Wednesday after massive protests for months. And it became clear that he lacked support from the key Republicans ahead of his confirmation hearing that was supposed to be held yesterday. President Trump announced his second choice at his news conference on Thursday. I just wanted to begin by mentioning that 
the nominee for Secretary of the Department of Labor will be Mr. Alex Acosta. He has a law degree from Harvard Law School. He's a great student, former clerk for Justice Samuel Alito. And uh, he has had a tremendous career. Alex Acosta is a longtime Republican attorney. He served eight months as a member of the National Labor Relations Board under President George W. Bush. He's drawn scrutiny for his time as division leader at George W. Bush's Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, where he oversaw a senior official who hired conservative lawyers who actively opposed the division's mission, including the prosecution of voting rights violations and police abuse. In 2004, Acosta played a key role in Bush's final push to win the state of Ohio by backing Republican election officials accused of seeking to suppress voter turnout among blacks and Latinos. Acosta is currently dean of Florida International University's School of Law. For more before we go to Washington, D.C., where we're joined by Think Progress editor Alan Pike, his latest article is headlined, Who is Alex Acosta? Trump's backup labor secretary has skeletons in his closet, too. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Alan. What are those skeletons? Talk about Alex Acosta's record. I think the fundamental problem for Acosta is likely to be his tenure at the top of the civil rights division of the Department of Justice under George W. Bush. Is a man with a long record of public service going back to the mid-1990s. But there's this key period from about 2003 to about 2005, during which Bush officials were intentionally sabotaging this key agency within the DOJ. This is the group that prosecutes voting rights cases, that upholds elections integrity, that conducts police oversight and enforces employment law, anti-discrimination law. Basically, every civil rights case that the federal government brings or investigates comes to the CRD. There was a man named Bradley Schlotzman who worked underneath Acosta, who went out of his way quite intentionally to skew their hiring for a period of years to ensure that they would hire people he viewed as, quote, unquote, real Americans. Uh, and for your viewers who remember the Bush years, that was the, the dividing line thrown down ideologically between uh, authentic, conservative Americans and, I don't know, somehow fake, uh, liberal-leaning Americans. So the Civil Rights Division was permanently sabotaged uh, by, by a couple of years of intentional misconduct. And Acosta wasn't directly involved, but he was overseeing the guy conducting that sabotage and had every reason to know about it. And there's an inspector general's report from 2008 uh, on their investigation into the scandal that holds Acosta pretty directly accountable. So talk about what happened in 2004 in Ohio and what is Alex Acosta's connection to that? So there's a, a, a bunch of different ways that you can try to suppress the vote, right? And one of the most popular among Republicans is a tactic called vote caging, where you generate a list of people who you suspect are Democratic voters, and you send letters to their uh, most recent address. And if the letters aren't returned, then you tell the Board of Elections, uh, this person's no longer registered at the correct address, and you should strike them from the rolls. And then when they show up on Election Day, they're told they're not registered to vote and they can't vote. So the Ohio Republican Party uh, I attempted to cage, I think it's something like 25 or 35,000 primarily black voters in the state of Ohio in the closing weeks of the 2004 election. And it ended up in court, as these things usually do. It was not a court case that involved the federal government. The DOJ was not involved. Alex Acosta had not been asked by the judge to weigh in in any way. Uh, but he nonetheless sent a letter personally to the judge in the case four days before Election Day, urging him to accept the Republican counsel's logic and to uphold their voter suppression scheme. So it's regarded by career attorneys in the Civil Rights Division as a wildly inappropriate use of his office, 
Uh, one of them, one of his colleagues at the time, called it outrageous in press reports about what happened, and that that 2004 letter has dogged him throughout his become the dean of the University of Florida's law school, which would be a sort of a promotion from his current gig at FIU Law, and he was uh, removed from the finalist pool in part because law faculty at the University of Florida strenuously objected to his uh, application to his candidacy, and one of the things they pointed to was that 2004 letter. Can you talk about what this nomination means for the Department of Labor? Sure. I think the, there's some poetry here in the sense that uh, the last—the outgoing Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, was also a career lawyer and a career public servant. Um, and when he came in at the Civil Rights Division, which was his first job under President Obama, he had to clean up the mess that Alex Acosta and Bradley Schlotzman and George W. Bush had made of the Civil Rights Division. There are a, a couple of famous moments from 2009, 2010, where Perez and Holder had to sort of go to the Civil Rights Division staff and tell them, look, you're open for business again. This is, this is once again an agency of the federal government that's going to do its job. Uh, that's, how, that's how dark uh, and how deep the damage was uh, from the Bush years. Um, and now we've got another uh, career attorney coming in to run the Department of Labor, sort of uh, in, the, in the reverse pattern of Perez's own career uh, arc within the Obama administration. And I think uh, it's noteworthy that there is such a contrast between Andy Puzder, Donald Trump's original nominee, fast food CEO with a, a sort of brash outward demeanor and a, a negative reputation, and lots of oppo research kept coming out and coming out and coming out. Uh, Puzzler sort of fits the Trump brand. Alex Acosta is a much more sort of buttoned-up professional type of guy. His reputation is for uh, highly competent management. Um, he's got a decade, two decades of public service behind him. And if you're uh, a progressive or a liberal or a Democrat, uh, that's probably almost more worrying than the idea of Andy Puzzler running the Department of Labor, because Acosta's record is Somewhat, is as someone who can very competently execute the agenda of his boss inside of a complex federal bureaucracy. So if, if you want to find somebody who can sabotage a federal agency and uh, turn it against its whole purpose, uh, Alex Acosta's resume is, is glimmering. It's, it's exactly who you want if you're out to sabotage the Department of Labor. Well, Alan Pike, I want to thank you for being with us, editor with Think Progress. His latest article, Who is Alex Acosta? Trump's backup labor secretary has skeletons in his closet, too. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Berkner. Okay, that was uh, Democracy Now!, sort of an extended version of uh, an interview with Alan Pike, an editor for Think Progress. Um, his so what we see is like a bureaucrat, someone who will do the work of others and uh, not make waves. Uh, not what we need in, in the Labor Department. Uh, this man is supposed to, to watch out for the interests of American workers. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, I want to play something on the record from 1984 uh, about anti-nukes saving the earth early on 1984 here we go let's see
That was uh, Kate Wolf. Um, like I say, I found this album. Seems like uh, if we're going to play anymore, we'll have to clean it up a bit. The album is called Out of the Darkness. That was Kate Wolf singing The Sun is Burning. And we'll go back and play some more of that. Um, like to play our uh, labor news. Okay? This is when we can review. Workers, Workers independent. independent news. We can review. I'm Doug Cunningham. Anti-union legislation has failed to pass in New Hampshire's state assembly. The bill would have prevented workers from deciding to put a requirement to pay union dues in their labor contracts. New Hampshire professional firefighters president Bill McQuillan told WMUR-TV Thursday it's a win for New Hampshire families. We're feeling very good about what happened today, and I think this is a victory for all in the middle class in the state today. New Hampshire AFL-CIO president Glenn Brackett. I consider that a victory for working families in New Hampshire. UAW President Dennis Williams says he's disappointed that South Carolina Boeing workers opted to vote against being represented by a union in the IAM vote this week, and he's really dissatisfied with Boeing over the harsh anti-union campaign in South Carolina. I am disappointed in Boeing because we represent some Boeing facilities and we have a good relationship. So I will be having conversation with those people who uh, meet with Boeing to tell them our dissatisfaction and you can't say to me in California that you want to have a partnership in a, in a relationship and then go stab me in Carolina. The relationships like that usually get divorces. Trump is mentally unstable and incapable of serving safely as president. That's according to 35 mental health professionals, including a Harvard psychiatry professor. In a New York Times letter to the editor, they say in part, quote, Mr. Trump's speech and actions demonstrate an inability to tolerate views different from his own, leading to rage reactions. His words and behavior suggest a profound inability to empathize. We believe that the grave emotional instability indicated by Mr. Trump's speech and actions makes him incapable of serving safely as president, end quote. <laughs> The Great Flint sit-down strike is 80 years old. It's like a valentine to working people from the past, reminding us that even in the darkest hours, working people have the right stuff to organize and to win. The Great Flint sit-down strike of 36-37 against General Motors won recognition for the UAW. About 2,000 workers sat down and occupied a vital Chevrolet factory for 44 days against police assaults. The strike was so effective that GM output plummeted from 50,000 to just 125 cars in February of 1937. UAW membership grew from 30,000 to 500,000 within the next year. Delia Parrish delivered food to strikers. Here come the cops. You can't go down there. I said, I'm going. And I did. And the management had the gate locked. And you know how tall that fence is. I couldn't reach it up high enough for them guys inside to get it. <laughs> they come out with torches and they melted that blooming fence to the ground. And then they could take the food all in. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham.
that America can't exist without separating them from their identity. Because if we had some sense of who we really are, there's no way in hell we'd allow this country to push its genocidal consensus on our homelands. This ignorance exists, but it can be destroyed. Niggas talk about change and working within the system to achieve that. The problem with always being a conformist is that when you try to change the system from within, it's not you who changes the system, it's the system that will eventually change you. There is usually nothing wrong with compromising a situation, but compromising yourself in a situation is another story completely. And I have seen this happen long enough in the few years that I've been alive to know that it's a serious problem. Latino America is a huge colony of countries whose presidents are cowards in the face of economic imperialism. You see, third world countries are rich places, abundant in resources, and many of these countries have the capacity to feed their starving people and the children we always see digging for food and trash on commercials. But plutocracies, in other words, a government run by the rich such as this one and traditionally oppressive European states, force the third world into buying overpriced unnecessary goods while exporting huge portions of their natural resources. I'm quite sure that people will look upon my attitude and sentiments and look for hypocrisy and hatred in my words. But my revolution is born out of love for my people, not hatred for others. You see, most of Latinos are here because of the great inflation that was caused by American companies in Latin America. Aside from that, many are seeking a life away from the puppet democracies that were funded by the United States. Places like El Salvador, Guatemala, Peru, Colombia, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and La República Dominicana. And not just Spanish-speaking countries either, but Haiti and Jamaica as well. As different as we have been taught to look at each other by colonial society, we are in the same struggle. And until we realize that, we'll be fighting for scraps from the table of a system that has kept us subservient instead of being self-determined. And that's why we have no control over when the embargo will stop in Cuba or when the bombs will stop dropping in Vieques. But you see, here in America, the attitude that is fed to us is that outside of America, there live lesser people. Fuck them, let them fend for themselves. No, fuck you. They are you. No matter how much you want to dye your hair blonde and put fake eyes in or follow an anorexic standard of beauty or no matter how many diamonds you buy from people who exploit your own brutally to get them, no matter what kind of car you drive or what kind of fancy clothes you put on, you will never be them. They're always going to look at you as nothing but a little monkey. I'd rather be proud of what I am rather than desperately try to be something I'm really not just to fit in. And whether we want to accept it or not, that's what this culture or lack of culture is feeding us. I want a better life for my family and for my children, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of millions of lives in my homeland. We're given the idea that if we didn't have these people to exploit, that America wouldn't be rich enough to let us have these little petty material things in our lives and basic standards of living. No, that's wrong. It's the business giants and the government officials who make all the real money. We have whatever they kick down to us. My enemy is not the average white man. It's not the kid down the block or the kids I see on the street. My enemy is the white man I don't see. The people in the White House, the corporate monopoly owners, fake liberal politicians, those are my enemies. The generals of the armies that are mostly conservative, those are the real motherfuckers that I need to bring it to. Not the poor, broke, country-ass soldier that's too stupid to know shit about the way 
things are set up. In fact, I have more in common with most working and middle class white people than I do with most rich black and Latino people. As much as racism bleeds America, we need to understand that classism is the real issue. Many of us are in the same boat and it's sinking while these bougie motherfuckers ride on the luxury liner. And as long as we keep fighting over kicking people out of the little boat, we're all in. We're gonna miss an opportunity to gain a better standard of living as a whole. In other words, I don't want to escape the plantation. I wanna come back, free all my people, hang the motherfucker that kept me there and burn the house to the goddamn ground. I wanna take over the encomienda and give it back to the people who work the land. You cannot change the past, but you can make the future. And anyone who tells you different is a fucking lethargic devil. I don't look at a few token Latinos and black people in the public eye as some type of achievement for my people as a whole. Most of those successful individuals are just sellouts and house negroes. But I don't consider brothers a sellout if they move out of the ghetto. Poverty has nothing to do with our people. It's not in our culture to be poor. That's only been the last 500 years of our history. Look at the last 2,000 years of our existence and what we brought to the world in terms of science, mathematics, agriculture, and forms of government. You know the idea of a confederation of provinces where one federal government controls the states? The Europeans who came to this country stole that idea from the Iroquois League. The idea of impeaching a ruler comes from an Aztec tradition. That's why Montezuma was stoned to death by his own people because he represented the agenda of white Spaniards once he was captured, not the Aztec people who would become Mexicans. So in conclusion, I'm not gonna vote for anybody just because they black or Latino. They have to truly represent the community and represent what's good for all of us proletariat. Porque si no, entonces te mando pa'l carajo, cabrón, gusano, hijo de puta. Seramos libres pronto. ¡Viva la revolución! ¡Viva la revolución! That was Immortal Technique. Sometimes I feel like we in the uh, resistance movement get to be... Uh, too mellow we get to be too accepting we we see our our strength in um, enduring not in fighting back but we have to fight back we have to stay strong we have to hold our beliefs hard between our teeth as we go out every day to do battle here's the world labor report This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, February 17th, 2017. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, Turkey fires 100,000 workers. Six unions demand the UN investigate the killing of student teachers in Mexico. The UK labor movement fights for the rights of pregnant workers and Praying for the Dead, a workers' musical. This is Radio Labor. 
The government in Turkey is using a military coup attempted last year to stamp out all opposition, including trade union activity. I talked to Kemal Ozkan, a deputy general secretary of the global union Industrial. Industrial represents some 50 million workers employed in a wide range of sectors, including mining, manufacturing, and garment production. Mr. Ozkan is from Turkey. I asked him to describe the situation in the country. I can tell you that this situation is really worrying and even frightening. Indeed, it is very bad for our workers, but let me tell you, it is also bad for the overall society, for all those people. And uh, I can tell you that the the key main elements of democracy and democratic institutions in Turkey are now disappearing. It really dismantles the whole democratic infrastructure. I understand that many people have been removed from their jobs. More than 100,000 people were taken from their positions, particularly as uh, the public servants, through presidential decrees with the claim that uh, they are part of terrorist organizations without any proof uh, from anywhere, without any court decision. And thousands of people were already fired. For the labor unions, it is obvious that uh, if there is no proper democracy, if no functioning democracy, if uh, the democratic rules and institutions are not working, there is no any environment for us to operate uh, properly. Six labor organizations, including the Global Union Education International, have filed a complaint with the United Nations Human Rights Council. I talked to a representative of one of the unions which has brought forth the complaint, the American Federation of Teachers. The AFT represents some 1.6 million teachers and other public service workers. Louis Malfaro is the president of the Texas branch of the AFT. I asked him about the complaint filed with the UN Human Rights Council. The complaint is about the teachers, the rural teachers from Mexico, who in September of 2014 were attacked. Some were killed, some were wounded, and 43 were kidnapped and forcibly disappeared in the town of Ayotzinapa. And this is an issue that made international headlines at the time, partly because of the horrific treatment of these uh, normal school teachers, students that were preparing to become public school teachers, but also because it was clearly done at the hands of both drug gangs and uh, local police and elected officials. And this is a case that has yet to be solved two and a half years later. Something that we think is emblematic of the corruption and violence that has really been tearing apart Mexican neighborhoods, Mexican communities. And as educators, we are outraged that two and a half years later, justice has not been served for these disappeared students or their families. What does the AFT, Education International, and the other labor organizations want to see happen? The AFT filed this complaint, as you know, with other teacher unions from around the world. 
and now Education International, which is our global union federation, an organization that represents over 32 million teachers, educators from around the world. We've filed this with the UN Rights Council, and we're asking them to put pressure on Mexico to continue to investigate what happened there. Unions and civil society organizations represent an important front line in making sure we hold government accountable. And it's clear that these 43 young people that were disappeared and are, are, are you know, certainly um, have been killed, although only I think the remains of only one body have been identified. This is something that our, our trade union movement has to speak out against. The Trades Union Congress in the UK is fighting back against pregnancy discrimination. Radio Labour's senior correspondent Seamarie Ainsborough reports. For many of the 15 million women working in Britain, becoming pregnant can be a job-losing experience. That's why the UK's Trades Union Congress is campaigning for better protection for women who become pregnant. The TUC represents 52 unions in the country. Here are some of the women who have been discriminated against because they decided to have a child. When I told my employer I wanted to take maternity leave, I was made to feel like I was an irresponsible teenager. They were aggressive and made me feel guilty. I was told I had to leave because I was pregnant. I had become too expensive for them to keep me on. I felt worthless. I was shouted and sworn at for being in the toilet with morning sickness. Victoria Phillips is a lawyer working with the Trades Union Congress. Pregnancy discrimination is very common and can be very aggressive. Unfortunately, the majority of pregnancy discrimination cases go unchallenged. Most women with a young baby aren't emotionally strong enough for a long and costly legal battle. Sarah Bailey is the former head of the TUC's Equality and Human Rights Department. We fear the situation has been made much worse by the introduction of fees for employment tribunals, with women having to find up to £1,200 in order to pursue a claim. One in three women do not return to the same job after maternity leave, even though they have the right to. This is a huge waste of women's skills, talent and experience. Uh, I'm not sure whether she Right, so if we put them down there. Thanks to my union, I won my tribunal. But I've had to start all over again. I lost the teaching job I loved. No woman should have to sacrifice her career just for choosing to have children. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Musical theatre has been part of the labour movement's activism right from the start because it can tell the truth like it's never been told before and give workers a voice for their grievances. A recent play by Jean Bruskin keeps up the tradition. Jean is a former director of strategic campaigns for the American Federation of Teachers. The play's called Pray for the Dead, a musical tale of morgues, moguls and mutiny. And uh, it's a musical comedy about political corruption uh, and economic corruption, something we're very familiar with here in the United States. But it's told through the story of a group of morgue workers in a union contract campaign that leads to an unlikely uprising. Pray for the Dead, 
a musical tale of morgues, moguls, and mutiny, takes place in an unknown country during a financial crisis in the early 21st century. It's the story of an unlikely national uprising inspired by a group of morgue workers. As the play opens, we learn that union shop steward Harmon is arguing with the owner of the funeral home, Doug Graves, because Graves wants him to sign a union contract that severely cuts the wages and benefits for the morgue workers. If he doesn't sign, Graves says he'll close the 100-year-old funeral home. We meet the workers as they sing about their desperate situation, and they introduce themselves. I work and work. I get no rest. I got no wealth. I'm so depressed. I have no hope. I feel no pleasure. I see no future. I dream of treasure. We work and we work and we get no that is just a taste of the musical. To hear more, visit our website for a link or search YouTube for Pray for the Dead by Gene Ruskin. You'll love that. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. The World Labor Report. Labor actions all over the world, all the time, every day, every minute. Somewhere around the world, workers are standing up and resisting the conditions of their employment, striving to make their lives better and their work better. I wanted to get back to that um, disc, that actual record, uh, we had the, the selection by Kate Wolf, and there there was some distortion. Here's uh, Pete Seeger, and then we'll follow him up with uh, Holly Near from you a sermon about old man Adam. Now I don't mean the Adam in the Bible, Adam. No, I don't mean Adam, Mother Eve made it. I mean that thing that science liberated. You know, Einstein said he was scared. If he's scared, boy, I'm scared. You know, life used to be such a simple joy. The cyclotron was a super toy. Folks got born, they'd work and marry, and Adam was a word in the dictionary. Then it happened. These science guys from every clime, they all pitched in with overtime. Before you knew it, the job was done. They'd hitched up the power of the doggone sun, put a harness on old Saul. Splitting atoms right and left, while the diplomats were splitting hairs. Cost the cartel crowd up and put on a show. They're gonna turn back the clock on the UNO, grab a corner on atoms and maybe extinguish every damn atom. Can't speak English. Down with foreign-born atoms. America for American atoms. Step right up, folks. Let's atomize world peace. 
Ah, but the Atoms International, in spite of hysteria, flourishes in Utah, also Siberia. The Atom don't care about politics or who got what and whichever fix. All he wants to do is sit around and have his nucleus bombarded by neutrons. Yes, it's up to the people, cause the atom don't care. You can't fence him in, he's just like air. And whether you're white, black, red, or brown, the question is this when you boil it down. To be or not to be? That is the question. Yes, and the answer to it all ain't military datum, like who gets their fustest with the mostest atoms. But the people of the world must decide their fate. We gotta stick together or disintegrate. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men could be cremated equal. some energy in the form of food and greeting the owner as I entered the store I didn't realize what I was in for test tube food <laughs> as I walked down the aisle from the shelves the packages all tried to sell themselves I'm ten cents off buy me you I got pink and purple hues Howard Hughes Test tube blues. You'll like me, honey, said some salad oil. The figure of my bottle will never spoil. And on my back, there's an offer label for a CD player for your kitchen table. Sorry, sister. You look a little bit too oil slicky for me. This food's fun, it'll get your girls, and the coupon gets your flag that unfurls to the beat of the Spangled Banner song. You better try it now, the offer won't last long. Homeland Security food, you eat it, and it does surveillance inside you the rest of your life. I found out where the produce were, and I bebopped on over there. I said they kept the people in Vietnam. Agent Oranges. I held a tomato in my hand. It was red but hard, you understand. Tomato, I said, this ain't your natural beauty. You're a drugged up money making cutie. Just a pretty face. Folks at Gria love only wealth, they don't give a damn about our health. Shut up and package without love. Tomato, you weren't grown up, you were shoved. Your upbringing's gonna bring me down. Still standing in the produce section of a supermarket, surrounded by people uh, speaking to a tomato. By eating you, I'm gonna bum trip, kid. You done more drugs than I ever did. We're victims of a capitalistic raid and the folks that picked you were underpaid. 
Viva Cesar Chavez! The cash register ring awakened me and it brought me out of my fantasy. And I went and I spoke to the counter cat and I told him just where I was at. Here and now. Wow. Wow. I said, Lord knows I got a rumbling gut and my stomach thinks my throat's been cut. But I ain't about to have my insides glued by this poison I call test tube food. You eat it. Wrong. Wrong. Raw, raw, raw. Yeah, there's plenty of things here you want me to swallow, but my body and soul would still be hollow. Besides, I sing off-key madrigals if I ate a food with 17 syllables. Easier to swallow a scrabble board. Methyl oxide, potassium methyl, was that their regular ethyl? There's Panama red and there's methyl red and one will leave you tired and the other one dead, take your pick. Now through corporate proclivities, some food has radioactivity. Glowing proof that yours can be a radiant nuclear family. You don't even have to cook it either. You just open the can on the counter and it has a meltdown. So I went to a place where the food was fast serving clone cows raised on pasture land rainforest once. I think I'd rather have some slow food for lunch. But not a corporate burger, it could have come from a septic company merger and it ain't no fun to eat what's in between those buns. Now I ain't quite ready to live just on the rays of the sun like I know some Indian yogis have done. But you are what you eat and how strange you see to go by the name of MSG. Part of the uh, <clears throat> walking blues as practiced by Pete Seeger and Charlie Morgan. Pete Seeger singing Old Man Adam and uh, Charlie's song about Frankenfoods and how they're programmed to do unfood-like things. For our labor history section today, I want to play a film, the the soundtrack from a video called Fistful of Lightning, History of the IBEW, 1245. And this is chapter one, newly released video. IBEW, the International Brotherhood of The members of of the IBEW Local 1245 are legally protected by contracts with over 270 companies. 
with wages and benefits that lead the utility industry. But how did they achieve this power? This is the story of workers challenging their employers, of labor's ongoing struggle to organize in a fight for better wages, safer working conditions, secure employment, and in short, a better world. In the early days of electric power, people compared its mysterious qualities to magic. Investors saw new ways to make money, but the workers who climbed the poles just found new ways to die. One utility executive with 20 years in the industry said he only knew one lineman who died of natural causes. In fact, so many linemen died on the job that insurance companies refused to insure them. In 1891, Linemen and electricians meeting in St. Louis established the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the IBEW. They wanted to create a death benefit so that their widows could afford to bury them. The union's first president, Henry Miller, died penniless at 38 after being electrocuted and falling from a pole. Electricity was first generated for commercial use in California in 1879. It powered gold and silver mines, lit up the famous Palace Hotel, and gave rise to a sprawling utility industry. In San Francisco, the IBEW chartered Electrical Workers Local 6 to represent the construction electricians who wired new buildings. Local 6 was affiliated with the San Francisco Building Trades Council, headed by Patrick Henry McCarthy. McCarthy had no interest in organizing the pole stickers at electric utilities, leaving linemen with no one to represent them. In 1900, employers from Los Angeles tried to recruit these San Francisco linemen to replace Los Angeles linemen who were on strike. The strikers urged the linemen to honor the strike and stay away from LA. The San Francisco linemen gathered at a lecture hall and decided they would not work as strikebreakers in Los Angeles. They also decided to form their own union and obtained a charter from the IBEW to organize Local 151. Within weeks, IBEW Local 151 went on strike at several San Francisco utilities. Union President David Keith said, it is a matter of life and death with us. By refusing to work until their concerns were addressed, the San Francisco utility linemen won the eight-hour day and time and a half for overtime. It was the first written labor agreement in the history of the IBEW. Following the lead of Local 151, workers organized at several San Francisco gas companies and negotiated a wage standard that applied to all gas workers. IBEW 151 wanted to negotiate a wage standard for all linemen, no matter what company they worked for. Their biggest obstacle was United Railroads and its president, Patrick Calhoun. In 1906, United Railroads controlled many of San Francisco's streetcars. Calhoun wanted to convert the streetcar system into a more profitable overhead trolley system. Calhoun's chief corporate counsel secretly gave $200,000 to a political fixer to bribe city supervisors into approving the overhead trolley system. The home of the brave, the land of the free, I don't want to be mistreated by no bourgeoisie. Lord. Some civic leaders objected that Calhoun was simply trying to squeeze money out of San Francisco to benefit his East Coast cronies. I got some bourgeois blues, I'm gonna spread the news all around.
When the 1906 San Francisco earthquake hit, everyone's attention shifted to rebuilding the ruined city. 28,000 buildings had been destroyed and nearly a quarter million people were left homeless. With the streetcar system in a shambles and with supervisors awash in bribe money, Calhoun's overhead trolley proposal passed unanimously. To keep this new corporate gravy train on track, United Railroads needed its linemen more than ever. But linemen weren't happy with United Railroads. The company required them to work 10-hour days, while linemen at San Francisco Gas and Electric worked shorter hours for more pay. In July of 1906, IBEW Local 151 took the linemen at United Railroads out on strike. The union demanded both a raise and a closed shop, meaning only union members could be hired. Calhoun saw this as a power grab, which of course it was. The linemen wanted more say over wages, safety, and other conditions of work. Calhoun hired James Farley, a notorious strikebreaker, who recruited scabs to run the streetcars and to intimidate the strikers. One newspaper called Farley a man who prefers hot blood to water as a beverage. Farley once made $300,000 for a single assignment and claimed to have broken 50 strikes in a row. To put down the United Railroad strikers, Farley hired 2,500 scabs from New York and armed them with 38s. The New York Times called it the first detachment of the biggest army of strikebreakers ever moved in this country for a battle between labor and capital. But the strikers were mobilizing too. H.L. Worthington, an IBEW officer and leader of the strike committee, knew the linemen weren't strong enough to win the strike by themselves. But they might succeed if all the workers at United Railroads walked out. Streetcarmen, track layers, and others also had to work long hours without overtime pay. Worthington persuaded six of these other unions to join the strike. This strategy of uniting all the company's workers for greater leverage was called industrial unionism. Faced with a united workforce, company president Calhoun backed down and accepted binding arbitration, meaning that a neutral third party would help settle the dispute. The arbitration panel awarded electric workers virtually everything they demanded. And all of the unions at United Railroads were granted the eight-hour day, except for the streetcarmen. Very soon, the linemen and streetcarmen would join forces again in one of the bloodiest strikes in the city's history. Noah, Noah, let me come in. Doors all locked and the window pin. That was uh, chapter one of Fistful of Lightning, the history of IBEW 1245 here in San Francisco. IBEW National, of course, one of the most militant of the building trades unions. Some odds and ends. Uh, if you're a comedian, a comic, a stand-up comic, come on down to Mutiny Radio March 1st through 5th. It's the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, and I liken it to those uh, um, saxophone battles that took place in when jazz was first beginning to disassociate itself from swing and become more of a more of an instrumentalist type music where. Um, People like Jay McShann, Charlie Parker, Lester Young, 
would have competitions. They would try out their licks with one another. That's what Mutiny Radio's comedy festival is supposed to do. This is where comedians come and work out their routines in front of live audiences with other comics, you know, evaluating them. So come on down, March 1st through the 5th, uh, every night from 6 to 10. Now accepting comedy demos, Verado Recordings. If you are a comedian, you send your one sheet with bio training credits goals. Send a CD or DVD containing 5 to 15 minutes of original improv stand-up or sketch. And yes, Labor did lose a big one in South Carolina. Mr. Trump went to Boeing right after an election where 74% of people voted not to unionize. But the nature of the rhetoric that they expressed is very strange. We'll have to take that up um, next week. We're running out of time right now. This is the B telling you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you're not on the, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Kerry Miraji takes us out. Bye, everybody. See you next Saturday. Or online at Labor and Love Radio. insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. This is Tusha Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah!
Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsidai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are you on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRack. <laughs> Subliminal SF brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now! 
to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Second annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is coming March 1st through 5th, 2017 to San Francisco, featuring 25 shows in five days and 50 comedians from across the entire U.S. From Washington and Portland to Los Angeles, New York to Indiana, Tennessee to Pennsylvania, these comics will join San Francisco's best underground comedians for five days of comedy at Mutiny Radio. All shows will be live streaming and available after via podcast at www.mutinyradio.fm. But see them live in our intimate 30-seat performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Mission, March 1st through 5th. Tickets available on our website, www.mutinyradio.fm now. Brought to you by our generous festival sponsors, Alta California Botanicals, Destiny's Mom, What a Tomato Produce Company, the law offices of John P. Strauss III, Asiento, FruFruHot.com, Jankytown.org, Brooke Heineken, Pervert Fervor, and Trina Roderick. Asiento. This locally owned Mission neighborhood bar and restaurant is excited to be a sponsor for Hey people, this is Flat Black Plastic Show on UniRadio.fm. Brought to you by the letter S. Shaking your hands right till the end of the set 